We are emphasizing worship in these days, and it's a marvelous thing to contemplate that God would let us approach Him. Isaiah did that in Isaiah 6, and we find a marvelous, marvelous experience that he had entering into God's holy presence. The word holiness is profoundly important for us to know and define. It reminds me of the little girl that returned home from school after the end-of-year tests. Her mother had labored with her. She was behind some in some subjects, and she was hoping that the little girl would do well on her end-of-year test. And she came home, asked her how well she did, and she said, Well, I would have done well, but they asked all the wrong questions. One, um, one wife had a similar experience with her husband. She took his car to go shopping and came home, noticed it was dirty and dusty, and cleaned it. And when she came home, she was so proud of herself. She said to her husband, The woman who loves you most in the world has cleaned your car. And he said, Mom's here? <laughs> yes. I want to recommend you don't make those kinds of statements today. Cy Robertson was packing some gifts for children for Christmas and placed a Bible in it, and he marked and pointed out to the Bible, I wouldn't be the man I am right now if Mama hadn't read this to me. He's right. There is something powerful about the presence of God mediated through these things. And I must say to you, the thing that parents dread probably more than anything in the world is damaging their children and their families. It is something that puts them to bed at night and wakes them up in the morning. And most of them do a better job than what they realize. They do. It may take sometimes too much blame. Now, those who don't, we, we wish that uh, they would change their minds in many ways. But a good parent is conscientious about these things and labors and struggles and strives. The truth is, though, the God that we're about to read of in Isaiah 6 has never had that problem. He has never worried in the evening or the early morning hours what impact he's had upon his children or his world. It's never bothered him. You see, parents worry about their words, they worry about their decisions, they worry about everything that goes into family life and marriage and parenting. God has never had to worry about such a thing because God is holy. God knows nothing of imperfection and knows only righteousness. And Isaiah got into God's presence in Isaiah 6 and found that to be true. Beginning in verse 1, he wrote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood angel, seraphim. One had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. 
and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, and houses are without a man, and land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it's cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. What we're referring to this morning is God's holiness. And I want to do that this morning in an effort to improve our worship. In fact, there are four ways we can improve our worship. One is to think about it biblically. In all the years I've discussed worship with people, I've never heard one ask, what does the Bible say, other than pastors and other than ministers of music and worship? Second, attend worship faithfully. When the body gathers, all the body should gather, and we do so Sundays and Wednesday nights. Third, prepare for worship vigorously. Come before God with a heart of repentance and confession and cleansing before arriving on the property on Sunday mornings. Get started Saturday night at 6 o'clock, if not earlier. And then, fourth, grow in worship intentionally. That usually involves some discomfort and pain. It involves a change in worship. Grow in worship intentionally. Now, to help our church family with this, we're having a worship conference next Sunday. We want to invite the entire church family to be a part of. Our own Tim Cotton is going to lead it from 1 to 3. We'll have lunch together and then start with that and finish at least by 3 o'clock. We really need folks to make their RSVP today so we'll know how many to prepare for. We'll be taking care of meal arrangements here, but we really want you to be a part of this. We have a marvelous gift in our minister of music and worship, Tim Cotton. Marvelously gifted. And I must say to you, I learn from him every time he speaks. And I pepper him nearly every week with questions just to learn. And I'm thrilled with that. And I want you to hear from him during that time. And we will proceed forward and improve our worship that way. And this morning, I'd like for us to do that by looking at God's holiness. Now, what is holiness? When I was younger, holiness was sharp and dangerous, I thought. In fact, it, uh, if I were to compare it to something, it would be much like a weed eater with razor blades or nunchucks at the bottom of it. 
That's much of what I thought about God's holiness. But as I've looked through the Word of God more and more, I have found God's holiness to be in utter relief in something that thrills my heart. It no longer repels or unnerves me. In fact, today it appeals to me because it, makes, it means that God is distinct. God is different than all the people of the earth and morally so distant. Now that's good news because I've been disappointed by people and so have you. I've been burdened and so have you. But that cannot be said about God. In fact, I want to define God's holiness this way. So to the answer to the question, what is God's holiness? God's holiness is the absence and presence. It is the absence of everything wrong and the presence of everything right. God's holiness is the absence of all bad and the presence of all good. The Holiness of God is the absence of every vice and the presence of every virtue. Completely, fully. You cannot find anyone who is more absent vice and wrong and bad and with anyone who in himself is the presence of everything right and good and virtuous and true. So all that is broken your heart that is sin and evil and wrong is absent from God. And everything that has cheered you and strengthened you along the way that is of righteousness and purity, God possesses that entirely and defines it all. That is God's holiness, absence and presence. And we worship God today because of absence and presence. And there are several things in this text that surface. In fact, four attributes of God that involve absence and presence, and that's why we worship Him. First, we worship God because His nearness is holy, and it has an absence and presence. I remember when I was in college, I had a dear friend, one of my best friends in the world, whose family lived only about 20 miles from the campus. And so often during the school year, we would visit his home and visit his parents. And sometimes, though, visiting his home was something of a burden. Because anytime my friends and I showed up at his home, it wasn't 20 minutes later before his dad was trying to put us all to work. He was that kind of fella. And the way we responded to it was we started wearing our good clothes over to his house. And when that no longer worked, we would tell him after he asked us to do something, we would say, well, you know what, in a few moments I think I have an emergency meeting. <laughs> and he teased us about that. Well, it was sometimes a burden to go to Joe Stroud's house. It was always wanting to do something with us. Isaiah had an enormous burden on his heart in verse 1. He said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah had been a marvelous king for 52 years. He sinned in some respects, but overall, he's evaluated in the Scripture as a king who was much like David, which was the highest Old Testament compliment you could ever receive. And for 52 years, his reign was stable, it expanded, and he was prosperous. But this is the year that King Uzziah died, probably around oh, 740 B.C. And Isaiah was a young man. He was probably in the priesthood. God had called him to be a prophet. And this began a difficult era because wicked King Ahaz would follow him. And the Assyrians would begin to threaten Israel. So on one hand, Isaiah is suffering the grief and loss of a good king someone he grew up with and admired. 
And then on the other hand, he was fearful because of the threat of Assyria and knowing Ahaz's reign was not too far away. Isaiah is burdened by the presence of Assyria and Ahaz and the absence of Uzziah. But in chapter 6, verse 1, God meets his need and shows up in a time of need. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. God's holy nearness is the absence of burden and the presence of relief. And the whole scripture witnesses to that. In Psalms 46.1, the scripture says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. He is someone that is easily found. There is no one closer in a time of burden than Almighty God. Jesus, in fact, later would come to say in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Church, I want to tell you, I've walked with him since I was a teenager, and I have found him to be utterly true. I have walked with him through loneliness, and I've walked with him through isolation. I've walked with him through college and three graduate programs. I've walked with him in handicaps. I've walked with him with medical bills. I've walked with him in heartbreaking diagnosis and emergency room visits. I, I have walked with him in times of approval. I've walked with him in times of disapproval. I've walked with him in times of temptation, new friends, and the loss of friends. And all the way through, I have found his presence to be a burden, never a burden, but always a relief and that's what God does and so when I think about his holy nearness it's only right to worship him but not only his nearness but secondly his greatness we worship God because his greatness is holy Muhammad Ali back in the 60s offended the whole wide world by saying and thumping his chest he said what I am the greatest and it scandalized the whole nation and the world. Now, he was quite an entertainer and promoter, of course. And so he got attention. In fact, 50 years later, we're still talking about that. So he's pretty effective. But those words, I am the greatest, do not fit Muhammad Ali. In fact, they do not fit any living human being. They don't sound right coming out of a human's mouth. That is, I am the greatest. Uh, they don't sound that way at all. Ladies and gentlemen, when God says it, it's entirely different. In fact, Muhammad Ali was on an airplane one time, and the stewardess wanted him to buckle his seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> God displays himself without shyness or bashfulness in his greatness in this text, and it's holy. He's on a great seat in verse 1. He's seated on a throne and he can afford to be. He can afford to be. There's no panic. There's no perspiration. He is seated on a throne because he's at rest and at peace with his work. Then he's got a great stature in verse 1. He's high and lifted up. Oh, for the rest of your life, someone's going to be trying to lift up some other God. In fact, your own heart and mind will conspire to do so as well. But he alone is worthy. He's above all competitors then, and he's, all, he's above all competitors now. He's got a great size as well. In verse 1 it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you imagine a bride walking down one of these aisles in a wedding, and the train of her dress filling this place from that corner to this and that corner to this, filling the balcony? 
God, the train of God's robe filled the temple, a building larger than this. God is huge and He's large to where even the train of His robe fills it all and is overflowing beyond capacity. And that's just the train of His robe. That's not His crown. That's not Him. It's merely the train of His robe, a great size. And then there are great sounds in verse number 2. The seraphim, which are angels, each had six wings, and with two they covered their face, and two feet, and two they flew and cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. These angels are very modest in the presence of God. They take wings and cover their eyes, and then they cover their feet. Feet were nasty and dirty in the ancient world. Not much has changed, I understand, but they would never show their feet in the presence of someone great. Negotiations with Saddam Hussein back in about 1991 were almost ruined when a diplomat crossed his legs and showed the bottom of his shoes to Saddam Hussein. That's the way it was in the ancient world and there even today. And so the angel is very, very modest. And then the angel gets into superlative singing. The Hebrew way to emphasize something was different than ours. We say good, better, best. Here, they cry out, holy, and even more so, holy, and more than that, holy. You repeat something three times as a Hebrew when you want to emphasize something. God is holy to a degree we cannot imagine. He is absent, 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 all vice. He is presence, 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 all virtue and all that is good. And the angel cries that out. In fact, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, these same angels are still doing this night and day from Isaiah's time until the apocalypse. And they're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ because Christ is the one on the throne here. Holy is the nature of God and who He is. The whole earth, though, is full of His glory. He's holy in His nature, in who He is. He's inherently holy, and because of that, there's a glow and radiance that comes from that that fills the whole earth with His glory. Now, there are no verbs in this text for the Hebrew, and many commentators think that he's actually projecting this onto the future and prophesying, one day the earth will be full of His glory. And so there is coming a day, because God is holy, when the whole earth will reflect that, and the whole earth will be something like a holy of holies. And God's throne and God's palace will extend to all of the earth. And the whole earth will be a palace for Him. And the whole earth will be a throne for Him. These are great sounds. They're great sensations in verse number 4. The posts of the door were shaken, not by a land mover or heavy operating equipment. The Posts of the door were shaken by the voice merely of an angel crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Our choir, in fact, has broken the building a few times with their great singing, and you have too. Well, this is what takes place in the temple. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. I remember when I was 12 years old, I had the opportunity to sail on the USS Coral Sea for a week in an Operation Tiger program. I was able to sail with my father. And the last day, we stood up on the brig outside and we watched A7s gear up and rev up their engines and take off from the deck of uh, the uh, USS Coral Sea. And I'll never forget, it was a strange sensation. We had to cover our ears with earmuffs and we stood there and the floor underneath our feet trembled and shook. 
at the mighty power of this A-7. Now, the A-7 was not the most powerful jet in the United States fleet. It's one of the smaller ones, but it still shook the floor underneath our feet. And it's as if it shook the air. I felt the air vibrating and catching my face standing there. In fact, my father has seen people blown off the deck of aircraft carriers simply by the blast of a jet engine. And that doesn't compare at all to what's taking place here in the temple in the holiness and presence of God because He's great. There's great smoke. God conceals His presence. We cannot know Him fully and completely in this life. It's not time yet, but the day's coming. But this was not the time, so the whole house was filled with smoke. God is great. And God is not intimidated at all even by the greatest of his enemies. His greatness is the absence of defeat and the presence of hope. And Isaiah needed to hear this with the Assyrians soon breathing down upon their necks. In fact, it wasn't the Assyrians who finally invaded Judah and took them out. God defeated them during the era of Hezekiah. Let me ask you a question. Where are the Assyrians today? Have you ever met an Assyrian? What about the Hittites? Have you ever met a Hittite? Have you ever met a Canaanite? Have you ever met a Perizzite or a Jebusite? You haven't met any of these. But let me ask you about Isaiah's race. Do they live today? This is a testimony to the greatness of God. And if God can bring down the mighty and exalt the humble then clearly His holiness is great. It's the absence of defeat and the presence of hope, and we worship Him for that. But there's a third thing. We worship God because His forgiveness is holy. Now this text is a classic text on the forgiveness of God. We find Isaiah confesses as a result of this. He cries out only what is reasonable, In verse 5, woe is me, I'm judged, I'm overwhelmed, I am undone. I've been pulled completely apart in the presence of God because I'm a man of unclean lips just like the people. I'm a priest, I'm a prophet, but I'm no better than these people. I may not have the sounds of Baal on my lips, but I'm just as wicked. I may not have the sounds of sinfulness on my lips, but I'm just as wicked. I am no better. He confesses that he's just like the people of unclean lips. And that's because of the confrontation that takes place here. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I don't want you to become too discouraged if you find yourself frequently convicted of your sinfulness. The more you get into God's presence, the more conviction you're going to feel. Conviction is a sign of spiritual growth. Now, there's a difference between conviction and guilt. Satan will heap guilt upon you. We don't want that. And that guilt will seek to drive you away. It will close the Bible for you. It will make you nervous and awkward getting into worship or around God's people. In fact, we oftentimes uh, in churches where I've served had people come in and in the most lovely, sweet, accepting congregations on the earth, accused the people of being judgmental. And we said nothing but, hi, let's go to lunch. 
And the reason oftentimes is, is that Satan is heaping guilt upon them and causing them to stumble. We don't want you to feel that. Guilt will drive you away from God and His Word and prayer and His commandments and righteousness. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will draw you to Him. And there'll be a sweetness. It's painful, but there'll be a sweetness to it to bring you closer to Him. But the more you get into God's presence and the more you grow in Christ, the more you will feel conviction. That's what happens when we get into the presence of God. And then, there's not only confession because of the confrontation, there's cleansing. One of the angels flew to Isaiah and had a live coal in his hand from the altar. Now this coal was burning because sacrifices had been made, presumably by Isaiah. So Isaiah had offered a sacrifice for his sins. And the angel then takes one of the coals and brings it and touches his lip. Now just imagine that experience. He said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and this fire has done what fire does. It's taken away something. In this case, iniquity. Your sin is purged. And so this coal was effective. It indicated sacrifice, and then it was entirely gracious because for his sins to be purged, Isaiah did nothing. God did everything. God granted the mercy and provided it. Now, this is a marvelous type of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ when we repent and turn to Him. John the Baptist promised in Matthew chapter 3 that when Jesus came, He would baptize us in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And so the reception and the experience of forgiveness is much like experiencing a fire. It's much like coming in contact with the fire. And that's why oftentimes I worry about people who constantly feel guilty. They confess their sin and they continue to feel guilty. Why does that happen? Well, it may be you may possibly have been conditioned through the years to have an oversensitive and overactive conscience. I know of one young man who had a father who struggled terribly with alcohol and a mother who stayed always upset about it, as you could well understand and sympathize. And one time... He came home and passed out in the living room, and she pointed to him and said, There's your father. Well, the kids weren't guilty of that. And she didn't mean to communicate that. But over the years, that had conditioned them to think that there was something wrong with them, and that's why their father was struggling with alcohol. So their conscience was oversensitized and overactive and hyperactive, in fact, and took on guilt and blame where they really didn't deserve it. But there's a second reason sometimes people can confess sin and still feel guilty, and that is sin has consequences. And whenever we do sin and even confess, it puts our conscience in an uproar in an effort to teach us, stay away from that. Stay away from that. A third reason may be that you're simply feeling the consequences of sin. And a fourth reason may be, uh, or a fourth uh, item here that you need to remember is this. Being forgiven, and this is something you may not understand, being forgiven has little to do with feeling forgiven. Your forgiveness is not based upon, it is not based upon your feelings. Your forgiveness is based upon faith and trust in the forgiveness and grace of God because of what Christ did at the cross and resurrection. And so the truth is, you may not feel very lovely after confessing sin. That does not mean God has not forgiven it. 
And what you need to do is grow to the point where you can align the fact that God has forgiven you with the feeling and the sense that you have in your own heart, in your own mind. The point I want to make here is God's forgiveness is the absence of His fury and the presence of His grace. So child of God, stop cringing. If you are in Jesus Christ, you belong to this holy God. And this God's forgiveness never ever fails. When He promises to forgive, He indeed and in fact forgives and expunges your record and makes you clean and acceptable before Him. And by the way, He doesn't economize or budget when it comes to forgiveness. He always has more than what you will ever need. And so whatever embarrasses you today, whatever creates upset of your behavior today, God has more than enough grace and willingness and eagerness to forgive. In fact, I'm confident to say God is more willing to forgive you than you are to receive it. And just how thirsty are you for it? God's desire goes even beyond this, and I can worship a God like that. We worship God also, not only because of of His forgiveness and His greatness and His nearness, but we worship God because His witness is holy. Sam James was a missionary to Vietnam during the Vietnam conflict, and he wouldn't leave the country. He sent his family on, but he stayed there, even though the nation fell into communist hands. And his presence was declared illegal. He continued on despite the opposition. The mission agency contacted the great African missionary and explorer David Livingston and said, we have some that are interested in joining you in your work in Africa to serve the Lord and to do missions. Is there an adequate road to your location? Now that was entirely reasonable to ask about David Livingston. David Livingston didn't usually dwell near the roads or the cities or the towns. He was out in the bush far beyond any development. And they had a few missionary candidates with one mission agency interested in working with David Livingston. And their question was, do you have a road to your location? And Livingston wrote back that if they need a road to come to Africa, I don't want them. I only want those who will come if there is no road. He had a commitment to reach his world despite the difficulties in opposition. And that's much of the tenor of this text. Isaiah was called in verse 8, Who shall go for us and whom shall we send? And Isaiah said, Here I am now. I've been cleansed. I've seen the greatness of God and I'm ready to go. And so God laid His hand upon him and told him in verses 9 and 10, Your ministry is going to be a ministry of condemnation. There weren't many converts during Isaiah's 40 years in ministry. And he said, you're going to continue this. Look at his question, a very reasonable question in verse 11. He said, well, Lord, how long? And God answered, you're going to preach to a people who will not listen to you until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, and all the men have been killed in war and battle, so there's no man in any home. That is how long? Until there are no more. Judah would not listen, but you may not realize, unless you've studied the New Testament carefully, though Judah did not listen, there are some who did listen. Some that listened marvelously to Isaiah. In fact, Matthew listened. And in chapter 1, verse 21 of his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, it's clear he listened to Isaiah 7.14. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mark listened. 
Mark listened in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 of his gospel to Isaiah 40, 3 through 4, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So Mark and Matthew were listening. Luke listened because he heard Jesus say in Luke 4, 16 through 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. He was listening to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. John listened in John 12, 39 to Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10 in this text. Philip listened. In Acts chapter 8, verses 32 through 35, and he listened to Isaiah 53, verse 7, All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. He was bruised for our transgressions, is what Philip said when he preached the gospel. Paul listened in Romans 15, 12 to Isaiah 11, 1, and John Wesley listened to Isaiah as well. One of his favorite texts was Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, Uh, Turn to the Lord while He is near. Call upon Him. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And John Wesley was used of God to prevent civil war in England and instead gave birth to the modern missionary movement which influenced our very own people. Judah may not have listened, but Isaiah kept declaring the word because God has persisted and the whole earth is different because of it. The whole earth is. God continued to reach through Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And then the Lord says, I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. In other words, Isaiah persisted in a rebellious, stubborn nation. They would not listen. Others did because God is persistent in His witness. In other words, God's holiness is the absence. His holy witness is the absence of impatience and the presence of tenacity. And He's pressing that upon you today. He's pressed that upon family, sometimes mothers. He's pressed that upon you through siblings and fathers. He's pressed that upon you in worship today. He's pressed that upon you when you've read the Bible. God is constantly pressing the soul gently and kindly to turn to Jesus Christ, and He's pressing Himself on you today. And I want to assure you, because He's holy, you can trust Him. He is holy in all that He does. He is completely absent of any impurity in His motives, and His love is completely present and what He wants to do with you. And this morning, if you will reject anything that keeps you from Jesus Christ, and if you will rely only on His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, God is able to perform what He promised, and He will come through every time. This God does not fail because He's holy. He does not fail. Let me ask you, are you holy and right with God today? What about your church membership? Are you doing with your church membership and Christian service what God wants you to do today? If not, you can make that right today by coming and joining Beach Haven Baptist Church. What about your life? Is it where God wants? What about your baptism? Is it on the right side of your salvation? By immersion, following the salvation experience. God invites you to make it right today, and God will come through. God is holy. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray.
Father, we praise you today that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are entirely holy. You're absent anything wrong. And present in you is everything right. You are entirely trustworthy. And it'd be a foolish thing not to trust you and obey you today. And I pray, dear God, that friends would reject in this hour anything that keeps them from the will of God, whether it's salvation, service in Beach Haven, a life, baptism. I pray they'll reject anything that keeps them from your will and rely only on Christ and thank you that you assure us you are holy. And so you'll come through with what you promised. You are able to perform that which you have promised. And we bless you for that. Oh Lord, there are many today that would testify and lift up their voices mightily on your behalf. And they'd say it far better and more convincing than I could. And I pray that more friends would join us today in knowing Christ, following Him in service in the church, following Him in baptism, following in a life that pursues the holiness of God. This morning, our staff will be here at the front as we sing our song. We want you to come. Share your spiritual need. We'll be very glad to help you, whatever that need may be. Tim, would you lead us? And you come. You come.